Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead this hour, prices are jumping, inflation expectations are surging, and the administration is playing defense. What does it all mean for stocks? We've got your Inflation Nation plays. Plus, trading Rivian, the EV truck maker's debut today is the biggest IPO of the year, raising nearly $12 billion. That's actually the largest haul on a U.S. exchange since 2014. Can the capital help it reach scale and justify its high price? And Mickey, Altmeet, and Money. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on Disney, Beyond Meat, and SoFi ahead of their results tonight. But first, we begin with today's markets as we all await Rivian. Yes, Dom. Rivian, we're still waiting. $78 IPO price. The indications, as you just saw in the halftime report, closer to the 106 mark, but still not open for trading. So we are still waiting to see when that happens. But sentiment wise on Wall Street, we are not far off of record highs, but still working on a two day losing streak at this point. Right now, the Dow Industrial is off one quarter of 1%, roughly 90 points, 36,230 the last trade there. 4671 is the last trade in the S&P 500 about one quarter of one percent as well. At the highs of the session, we were down one point and down roughly 22 points at the lows of the session. So you can kind of see that in context. We're down 14 right now. And by the way, let's get you a check on Rivian right now. RIVN shares have just opened for trading. We'll kind of get a look and see what the, what's going on here. But Rivian shares about 106.75 is where it opened. So not far from where we just saw it. You can see 107.20-ish, the last trade there. That's up 36% from the $78 IPO price. So Rivian Automotive, after waiting so long this morning, finally opened shortly after 1 p.m. Eastern time. Kelly will continue to keep an eye on this. Much more on Rivian, I'm sure, coming up. But that valuation is big. $105 a share. It opened up at 106.75. I'll send things back over to you, Kelly. Wow. All right. You nailed it, Dom. Uh, Dom Chu with our open there. Again, this is a humongous offering. I mean, we're looking at shares of Rivian. They priced about 10 or 11 million shares before the official open, but we're talking about maybe 130 million shares uh, debuting in this offering. It's the biggest IPO of the year. They're raising $12 billion. Let's take a quick look at how its market cap right now compares with the other automakers. We know Tesla is over a trillion dollars. Its shares are actually higher today after posting their biggest one-day drop this year yesterday. Tesla's down about 13% since last Thursday, shaving $200 billion off its value. At 106 a share, Rivian's market cap currently stands around $90 billion. Bigger than GM, bigger than Ford, which owns a 12% stake in Rivian, so we'll participate in the uh, upside here. Phil LeBeau is in Chicago, standing by with more details. Phil, your thoughts on this open? Uh, Kelly, I want to see what this trade's like, let's say, over the next hour. Just let's take the next hour. And I know that that's just a small sample size. Let's see if it hangs here in this 105 area, now trading as high as 110, 111. Uh, you know, earlier it was indicated uh, at 125, early, early this morning, and then ultimately it came back down into that 105 range. Uh, and again, trading at 111 right now. Uh, it has been a busy day for founder and CEO R.J. Scaringe, the CEO of 
Rivian. He rang the opening bell for the NASDAQ, which is where shares of RIVN are trading, ringing the opening bell virtually from the company's facility in normal Illinois, surrounded by all the Rivian employees. And as you mentioned, Kelly, they're going to be raising almost $12 billion. And I've had people say to me, well, what are they going to do with that money? Part of that money will go towards finding another assembly plant. They've been out scouting locations. They have not indicated exactly where they will build a second uh, final assembly plant. But they will be building one in the next couple of years, in part because they think they're going to be a capacity in normal Illinois if all goes as planned by the end of 2023. One of the primary vehicles that will be built at that plant It's an electric delivery van for Amazon. Amazon has ordered 100,000. I've been told that that order is going to grow substantially over time as Amazon looks for more electric delivery vans. So they've got 100,000 of those ordered, the first ones being delivered this quarter, and then they'll ramp up production over the next couple of years. And one more time, let's take a look at the market cap of GM, Ford, Rivian, and Lucid. Just to put this all into some perspective in terms of where Rivian's market cap is, as it is right now, relative to GM and Ford, at $90 billion, that's above GM and Ford. Lucid, I think, is at about $72 billion, somewhere around there, 79 uh, or you would see in Tesla, Rivian, GM, and Ford. Uh, and then I said Lucid is around $72, $73 billion. So, you guys, or Kelly, I'm not surprised that uh, we're seeing as much excitement as we are surrounding Rivian. And I know we're already hearing from people on social media saying, look, they're only going to sell, you know what, they've only sold 1,500 vehicles. They've only delivered that many. You know, these guys are not turning a profit. They're going to lose more than a billion dollars for the third quarter. This is a wacky valuation. I'm not going to comment on the valuation. What I will say is that within the auto industry, this is not considered as a Johnny-come-lately, a company that's going to you know, flame out. Many believe it will be around. Now, whether or not it is as successful as Tesla, no way of knowing. Um, No way of knowing what it'll be like in five years. But the feeling is that these guys are the real deal, at least when it comes to electric vehicles, and they will be around and will be a player uh, in the future. And we should know, well, and, and the first point you made that everyone should be aware of is these cars are already are on the road. So, yes, they're very small, but still, they're not just a business plan like we've seen with some other uh, EV uh, makers. There are, right. the cars are already out there. 106.75, we are barely above right now, even though on the screen it looks like a big pop. Only the insiders in the IPO got the $78 price. So, watching that 106.75 level very closely. Phil, what did you, I mean, it was a very interesting story in the journal over the weekend about the battle between Ford and GM sure. for a piece of Rivian. And even though Ford won, it sounds like that really relationship. I don't want to say soured. That might be too strong a word. But, you know, Rivian is disrupting Ford now. And even though they'll financially benefit from this deal, perhaps there could have been, you know, much bigger synergies there that now it feels like aren't really going to take place. I I think this, Kelly, I think the decision was made at Ford uh, and it was made some time ago that when it comes to electric vehicles, they do not want to be a partner only with an electric vehicle company. And that was the idea originally when they bought into Rivian in Mm. early 2019, late 2018. Look, they were way behind when it came to electric vehicles at that time. And Rivian was a smart investment. They put a half billion dollars into the company. And originally the plan was, hey, Rivian is going to be the platform for our electric vehicles. Well, since then, Ford has made the decision, look, 
We can do it ourselves. We are going to build our own platform. And that's what we see with the Mustang Mach-E. You're going to see it with other vehicles coming out, the F-150 Lightning. And that was the decision that Ford made, that we can do it ourselves. Right. Some people are are playing this as, you know, Ford's going to cash out and they don't really care for Rivian. That's not the case. It's more a case of Ford saying, we have the expertise. Mm. We believe in our plan. We're going to go forward with our plan. Oh, and the market seems to be rewarding them for that, uh, for heading in that direction. And they're rewarded from this IPO as well. Phil, thank you. We really appreciate it. Phil Lebeau reporting from Chicago. My next guest says Rivian today is entering the market at a similar moment as Japanese car makers did back in the 1970s and 80s. And that should bode well for it in the long run. Joining me now is Duncan Davidson. He's a partner at Bullpen Capital. It's great to have you here, Duncan. Uh, what are your sort of gut thoughts on this IPO, which is at a very, very high valuation? Well, first of all, you guys have done terrific reporting on Rivian. I've been listening to it. Great job. Look, my point about this is Rivian is the mini-me of Tesla. They follow the same playbook. They're going to do as well as Tesla in their segment. They've gone after trucks. Now, why are trucks interesting? They don't have the range anxiety you have in cars. Delivery vans, construction pickups, drive local. You can make sure you use it all day long and not run out of of any type of electricity. So I think they picked a stunningly good segment. Your comments on Ford, they're going right after the F-150. What a huge market for Ford. These guys are going to go right and target it. So I love Rivian. So let me ask you, let me, let me push back on this a little bit. It feels to me like Tesla has been the best gift ever for Rivian because everybody who's watched it vault in valuation this year goes, all right, maybe I didn't get in on Tesla early enough, but now I can on Rivian. And I look at this $100 billion valuation at the open, and it reminds me more of Uber. Well, here's the thing. EVs are going to go after the car industry, the legacy car industry. And the challenger usually wins. We've seen this Silicon Valley story over and over and over again. We're seeing it right now. And don't underestimate the impact these people are going to have in the normal car market. It's really hard for incumbents to, like the the Ford F-150 Lightning, it's going to be hard for Ford, despite all its strengths, to go after Rivian. And that may sound strange to you, but they have legacy to deal with. You go to the dealer. Should you buy a gas 150 or electric 150? It makes it challenging for Ford to push its scale in the market, whereas Rivian's got a really clear direction you know and they're doing direct selling like Tesla. I totally so I think agree. you're going to see EVs I win totally. over the legacy car over the long run. I agree with you 100% on that. I mean, obviously, the legacy automakers will catch up because it will just that will be the market. They have no choice in that sense. But you know, when you look at the production that Tesla is operating at and the amount of time it's taken them to get there, the manufacturing nightmares, they're still bringing Austin and, and Berlin online right now. You know, the issue with EVs is not demand, it's supply. How can you make them quickly enough? What are the sustainable profit margins going to be like? I mean, Rivian looks great, but at a $100 billion valuation, I'm just curious how quickly you think they can reach production that justifies that valuation, let alone a higher one. Well, first of all, if you look at how these things are priced, they're like 10 to 20 times sales. Next year, Rivian's supposed to have around $8 billion of sales. So this actually means this pricing is not out of whack if they actually hit the production. That's the Achilles heel. Tesla's had real difficulty scaling up over the years, and they had much more time than Rivian had to do it. But I think we're going to solve this problem pretty quickly. Look at the whole car industry. They're having a problem with with production now anyway because of chips and other friction in the supply chain. 
My real point, though, is what you made at the very beginning. In the 70s, we had gas price wars. We had gas problems. We had the OPEC. We had everything that was too expensive and too complicated. There were shortages. What's happening right now? Down the street with me and from me in California, there's $650 gas mm. premium. The cheap stations are over five bucks. We haven't seen anything like this since the 70s, and it doesn't look like it's going to clear up quickly because there's some hostility to the old fossil fuel industries right now. What does that mean? The EVs now have a moment where they're not going to sell save the planet. They're going to sell cheap. Yes. They're going to say, do I really want to have a gas truck which might have gas shortages and problems or should I go electric? You're going to see people make a normal buying decision that they hadn't usually been making mm -hmm. in this marketplace. That's going to change everything. And once this happens, we're not going to look back. I, I think that's very, very well said. And the timing isn't just Tesla, like I mentioned. It really is also as they become more economically competitive. Duncan, really fun to have you on today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Duncan Davidson with Bullpen Capital. Meantime, the biggest inflation surge in more than three decades is pushing yields and the dollar higher. And we just had a 30-year bond auction, which didn't go over so well. Rick Santelli is calling it a monumental one. Let's bring him in from the CME. Rick? Yes, a horrible, capital H, horrible 30-year bond auction. I've been watching 30-year bonds since 1979. A lot of auctions between then and now. This could be one of the worst I've seen. Look at an intraday of 30s. You see the way yields jumped? Well, let's go through the auction results. The when issued market was trading 1.885. This price at 1.94%. Almost a six basis point tail on this thing. Huge. And every metric was not good. Bid to cover a 2.20, worse since July of 21. 59% on indirects, the lowest since November of 2019. 15.8 on directs, lowest since October of 20. And finally, if we look at what's going on with regard to dealers, they took a jumbo amount of that buffet because investors didn't eat much. 25.2%, the biggest since August of 20. And... If you consider the fact that many investors saw the data this morning, let's look at it. CPI year over year caught my eye at 6.2%, the hottest since the early 90s. And five-year note yields just skyrocketing. And if you look at a 6 a.m., you could clearly see at 8.30 Eastern when they saw the inflation data, they jumped and they jumped again on the auction results. You can even see what it's doing to yield curves. Remember, flattening yield curve means that they are selling short maturities or buying long maturities, a combination of those two factors. But what we're seeing here is selling across the entire curve. And finally, the long end woke up, steepening all these curves. And this is something to pay Big time attention to Kelly. Rick, can we talk about the dollar as well for a moment? Because everyone seems to take it for granted that it's strong here. But often inflation is supposed to be bad for the dollar. It, you know, it sinks that that's the whole point of investing in other kinds of, of assets is that they rise because the dollar's falling in value. What do you make of the fact that it's so strong right now? It's like when a sick patient goes to see the doctor and he has his diagnosis and he knows what's wrong. And he says, here's the medicine that'll cure you. The markets are basically telling the Fed, we need some more medicine. The way the yield curve's moving, it really underscores that notion. And the fact that the markets are being so bossy at this point in time has given the dollar index a bit of a jolt. Got it. So you think the dollar is responding to markets pushing the Fed to maybe raise rates more quickly? 
Yes, and, and if they're going to raise rates more quickly, that means they have to taper more quickly. And all of that sounds murky and difficult to me. All right. Rick, thank you very much. A bossy bond market today. Rick Santelli out at the CME. So as mentioned, the consumer price index now up 6.2 percent from a year ago. It's the hottest reading since 1990. Let's dig into the reasons why. Fuel oil rising almost 60 percent on the year. Energy up 30 percent. Used cars up 26 percent. New cars up 10 percent. And food up 12 percent. Now housing is starting to rise as well, playing some catch up to home price appreciation up 4 percent, but rising quickly month on month. So how can you inflation protect your portfolio? Joining me now, Cheryl Pate is portfolio manager at Angel Oak Capital Advisors. And Chris Zaccarelli is CIO at Independent Advisor Alliance. Welcome to both of you. What a day. Uh, Cheryl, let's begin with you. How should people protect themselves? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we look at the, uh, the data points around inflation, um, we are really more focused on staying shorter duration here um, and particularly favorable on the financial sector. Banks in particular, consumer finance um, are all leveraged to, to outperform in an inflationary environment, given us deeper yield curve, reacceleration, releveraging of the consumer and still a benign credit environment. Chris, should you stick with inflation trades or do we start to jump ahead and say, well, like Rick said, but the Fed's going to tighten. They're going to raise rates more. Maybe that could slow the economy. Maybe it brings bond yields down, even though they've been on the rise. At what point, you know, how far ahead of the story do we try to get here? Well, I think at, you know, at this point in the cycle, you're going to need to have some inflation protection in your portfolio. Absolutely. So I wouldn't abandon any trades that you have in place already in order to protect your portfolio. You're going to have some, uh, some positions and some companies that can do well throughout any environment. But you're also going to continue to need to have some companies that can do well in an inflationary environment. So companies with pricing power, companies that can benefit from rising energy prices. We don't think it's too soon to take those positions out of your portfolio. All right, Cheryl, let's talk through the positions you would specifically recommend. American Express, Capital One, Ally, SVB Financial. So are these basically rising rate plays or is there more to the story? I think there's more to the story. When we think about the consumer finance and and the credit card companies in particular, um, I think this is a great opportunity for card acquisition. We saw that in American Express earnings where they added um, the highest number of of new card accounts in over three years. So it's not just um, higher rates playing in here. It's a willingness to borrow again and spend again, um, which will drive higher volumes, higher loan growth. um, And then the rates are added into that in terms of margin um, expectations oh, as well. I, I hope everybody caught what you were saying there, Cheryl, because there's huge macro implications. You know, we'd love to see loan demand rising, but then you start to wonder about the velocity of money, which has been so low, and what if that starts to pick up again? And Chris, I think uh, one estimate I recently saw was that if velocity of money just went back to what it was pre-crisis, nominal GDP would jump by like 25%. <laughs> Unfortunately, inflation would probably be a big part of that. And the market's starting to price that in. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the velocity of money, that's really been the, the key for post-global financial crisis and to some extent, you know, post-COVID crisis in terms of M2 has been very large. We've had huge amounts of money in the system, just the velocity has stayed low. If that velocity starts to pick up, that's where you could see some inflationary pressures. And so for us, that's why we're looking for those companies with pricing power, you know, that can, that can rise, pr- raise prices as their input costs go up, as their transportation costs go up, as energy goes up. 
in, in costs in terms of the supply chain. So sure. things like Apple, things like Google, companies that can raise prices and their customers will pay those increased prices. You even have Qualcomm, Exxon, Valero. But Chris, is it also possible that people don't have to overthink it because owning the market, broadly speaking, has been a great way to defend against inflation right now? I mean, it's almost literally the flip side of what we've been witnessing. Earnings are high. Earning uh, Profit margins are high. I mean, there seems to be a, a general idea that the stock market itself has enough pricing power to protect your portfolio. And I think it really depends. I mean, within the S&P 500, you know, clearly it's a market cap weighted index. So you're seeing some of those more higher quality, more, um, you know, better brand companies that are t- taking up a larger part of that index. And to some extent, owning the index can help you in an inflationary environment. But I think you'll see if inflation does go higher, with even within the S&P 500, there's going to be winners and losers. And you're going to see a pretty big difference between those companies in the S&P 500, which can preserve their profit margins and either maintain their stock prices or move even higher. And those companies are going to see those margins compress. And once investors see those margins compressing, you're going to see a little bit of a run for the exits within those companies. And, and that's something that you know, we would say you'd want to avoid and not necessarily own the index in that yeah. particular case. And I should mention the S&P is down about half a percent right now. So it's not exactly flying after the CPI data. Chris Zaccarelli, Cheryl Pate, thank you guys both for your time today on how to inflation protect your portfolios. Still ahead as the COP26 climate summit continues in Scotland. We're looking at what it will take for U.S. companies to cut emissions and meet President Biden's climate goals. Spoiler alert, they have a long way to go. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to The Exchange as markets hit session lows right now. Down 182 for the Dow was the so far low watermark, if I can call it that. We're down half a percent. The S&P down six tenths of one percent. Look at the Nasdaq. Most investors in the market have been telling us till they're blue in the face that if bond yields are going up, the Nasdaq could be under threat. A version of this is kind of playing out in the market today. The Nasdaq down one and a quarter percent. Let's get a check on Rivian as well, which just opened for trading about 20 minutes ago. The biggest IPO of the year. They're raising $12 billion. I like to focus on not the $78 IPO price, but 106.75. That's where it opened to the public at 1 p.m. Uh, we're above that level right now by about six bucks. It's at 112. Of course, it's well above uh, where it priced last night. Here are some of the other movers this hour. Open door is lower ahead of its quarterly results after the bell. 
The stock, in fact, is on pace for its fourth straight day of losses and its worst week since August. Now, this comes after rival Zillow announced last week it's shuttering its home flipping business. And just this morning, Zillow reached a deal to offload about 2,000 homes. It's wreaking havoc in real estate markets across the country. Zillow shares are down 36 percent this month, and that seems to be weighing lately on Open Door. We'll see if they can change things tonight. Meanwhile, check out shares of Krispy Kreme moving higher after reporting a beat on the top line and inline results for third quarter earnings. The CEO touting Krispy Kreme's pricing power. So there you go. Inflation protection. He says they have more flexibility because they're a, quote, dozens business. <laughs> Maybe Baker's dozen. And customers are willing to pay up to 50 percent more for specialty donuts. They hiked prices in September. They plan to raise them further into year end. While the shares are down 35 percent from their all time high of 21 on the IPO day four months ago and on pace for their 10th week of losses in the past 11, they are adding five and a half percent today. Still ahead, we're talking media, meat substitutes, and fintech on your phone in today's earnings exchange. The action, the story, and the trade for Disney, Beyond Meat, and SoFi. Stay with us. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get to the biggest IPO of the year. Rivian opening for trade on the Nasdaq at the top of the hour, raising nearly $12 billion for the largest haul for an IPO in the U.S. since 2014. It's one of the largest since 1995, in fact. It's valued right now around $96 billion. Let's bring in Mike Santoli for some thoughts here, Mike. I mean, I've suggested it reminds me a little bit of Uber. What would you say? Something like that, although I guess you would argue that Uber was, in a sense, the, the kind of pioneer and incumbent in that area, whereas Rivian comes to the market uh, and is being given a tremendous amount of credit up front for basically eventually being successful as being a huge scale player in EVs. Uh, but it has this valuation umbrella in Tesla. To me, it says the market so craves a multiplicity of bets in this massive opportunity of EVs that it's willing to just pay up for the next name that seems like it has a shot. You know, also, if you're using Tesla as your easy comp, uh, and it, there's no reason you really should, except they're in the same business. I mean, Tesla's going to make a million cars next year. Uh, it, it's still there, though. And so if you were concentrated in that one name, you thought that was the only game in town to play it as a pure play, you're willing to pay a little more for Rivian here. So now Rivian, 10% of uh, Tesla's market cap, around $100 billion. Uh, Two months ago, uh, it was a $700 billion market cap at Tesla. So 10% of that was 70, which is where people thought that Rivian was initially going to come out here. So it's a lot of funny math and kind of, you know, how many, uh, how many goats are worth a pig? <laughs> but or, do you want to buy livestock in general? That's often the question. Um, I guess I'm thinking about it more from the sort of the way that Uber has traded since hitting the markets. You know, it's it basically hasn't yeah. budged in two years and it's oh, hundred billion right. yeah. dollar. I, I don't know if it was exactly a hundred billion at the IPO, but I'm looking at some of the other hundred billion dollar IPOs and it was Airbnb, which is up about 20 percent since that time. I think Coinbase, which is down 30 yeah. percent. It's just such a rich valuation to come to market. I'm wondering if you can think of any e exemptions from what seems to me to be a rule that 
when you come to a market that top heavy, it's really hard to make all of your, I mean, maybe, I don't know how big Amazon was. No, that's, it certainly that's wasn't actually a billion. great way to frame it, actually, Kelly. I, I do agree with that. Um, well, look, Facebook famously insisted on the $100 billion valuation out of the gate May of 2012. Huh. That's when $100 billion was really $100 billion. Um, <laughs> And the stock got cut in half over the next six months. It wasn't just because it was too aggressive on the offer, but it does show you that even if it's been a massive win from then till now, along the way, you had a huge give back. Even Airbnb traded a lot lower in the ensuing months, as has DoorDash, uh, even though it's now up from its IPO. So I do think there's a cost uh, to the public investor, to the secondary market investor, when a company basically debuts at this level, it really does pull forward a lot of the potential economics and, and obviously, uh, you know, what there was to be reaped out of this company. Absolutely. Well said. And, and, we'll, and we'll see in this case. I mean, obviously, the EV market is very different right now, maybe maybe much larger potential. Mike, we appreciate it. We'll let you go for now. Mike Santoli down right. at the NYSE. Let's get over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Good afternoon. Fireworks at the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. After sending the jury out of the room, the judge berated the prosecutor for questioning Rittenhouse about whether it was appropriate to use deadly force to protect property. Earlier, the judge said that he was likely to prohibit that line of questioning. Hours ago, I said I had heard nothing in this trial to change any of my rulings. So why? Testimony, Your Honor. Pardon me? That was before the defense testimony. Don't get brazen with me. Uh, You knew very well, you know very well that an attorney can't go into these types of areas when the judge has already ruled. And tonight on the news with Shep Smith at 7 Eastern, the Rittenhouse defense team gets a surprise. A witness that they expected would support their case admitted he lied about a threat to Rittenhouse the night of the protest. That's tonight. And in the last half hour, a joint statement from the U.S. and China at the Glasgow Climate Summit. The two countries say that they are firmly committed to working together and with others to strengthen the Paris Agreement to cut back on greenhouse gases. The U.S. has been critical of China's leader for not coming to the summit. And the United Nations says that Secretary General Antonio Guterres is concerned about the migrant crisis on the border between Belarus and Poland. He says that it shouldn't be used for political purposes. But NATO is slamming Belarus, saying that the country's use of migrants to put pressure on Poland is inhumane, illegal, and unacceptable. You're now up to date. Kelly, I'm sending back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you very much. Up next, it's all about Plus and Parks for Disney. There's 28% short interest in Beyond Meat. Does that make it a target for a short squeeze? And no sells on SoFi. Can its results justify the bullish sentiment? The key metrics to watch and how to position ahead of today's After the Bell reports coming up next in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for another edition of Earnings Exchange, where we'll give you the action, the story, and the trade on three key reports on deck. Today's lineup, Disney, Beyond Meat, and SoFi. Let's kick things off with Disney, the media juggernaut expected to report earnings of 51 cents a share on nearly $19 billion in revenue. Despite its strong brands like Pixar and Star Wars and Marvel, Disney warned subscriber growth for Disney Plus would likely come in weaker than expected. The shares are actually down 3% on the year and down 15% from their all-time high back in March. Let's bring in our own Julia Borson for the story here. And Delano Sapporo, who is founder of New Street Advisors and a CNBC contributor, and he will give us our trades today. Welcome to you both. Julia, Disney's almost become a punchline, Disney Plus, uh, with this issue, I guess, about its offerings. Well, look, Disney Plus had been growing so quickly. And then Bob Chapek warned that growth in this quarter, this is the fiscal fourth quarter, would be in the low single digit millions. 
Analysts, though, are still anticipating that it's going to be more like the addition of 9 million Disney Plus subs. So we'll have to see how that number shakes out. That's going to be very much in focus. Other areas to watch include the theme park division, how fast that division is rebounding and what the sense is of how much that rebound is going to continue into next year. And then also, of course, sports. Disney has spent so much on sports rights. Are they going to be investing more? And what is their plan in terms of ESPN moving more of those rights onto ESPN Plus, Kelly? All right, Delano, what is the trade here? Uh, I think the trade is to hold, Kelly, and I think just as Julia mentioned, the big the big thing investors are looking at right now is the theme parks and experiences growth to offset some of the slowdown in growth and direct to consumer. So that's a big thing that I'm looking at. I think you saw that the management is stating that they're seeing some stronger reservations, um, they're seeing stronger demand. So that might be an area where investors can hold their hat on if those numbers start to increase as we see we're getting away from the COVID period. I think that's the biggest player. So you want to hold and see if the the times of 2019 can come back into the stock. All right. We'll leave it right there. We'll move along, Julia. We appreciate it. And we'll see what they say on subs this evening. Next up is Beyond Meat, where analysts are calling for a loss of 39 cents a share on $109 million in sales for Q3. Last month, it warned about a number of challenges, including headwinds from the Delta variant, a decrease in retail orders lasted longer than expected, and operational issues, including a water shortage at a Pennsylvania plant. The shares are down 22% this year. Kate Rogers has more uh, on the story here. Is it earnings, Kate? What's the most important metric for Beyond Meat? I definitely think we know the revenue number, as you mentioned, is going to be below the company's initial range of between 120 to 140 million. So we're going to be listening for how Delta impacted the quarter more broadly in both its retail sales in food stores and then in restaurants. It's two lines of business. Beyond has said there have been some decreased orders for longer than anticipated, Kelly, and some incremental orders didn't materialize as one of its large customers had changed distributors. Labor, as you mentioned, also played a factor in its revenue guidance. So that's something to watch. But Beyond also has some big name partnerships to keep an eye on. The McPlant test is running now in eight McDonald's locations in the U.S., which is a big deal. It also has partnerships with Yum Brands and Pepsi. So any updates on that? And one more thing, chicken. How its chicken expansion (laughs) is going both in stores uh, and its tenders, which are revamped and selling in food stores. So I would love to hear some updates on all of those. All right. The shares are down another 2% today, Delano. You said when it fell below 100, that was kind of a key level. Um, what, What would you be doing with the stock here? So, so I'm not in the stock, but I think investors that are in, you know, we had you got to kind of look at it in a long term perspective here. This is obviously still a new industry. And I think one of the areas on the upside for this stock is you're seeing stronger demand internationally, and that could be a, a place for the stock to hit the company to hold its hat on, right? And so, uh, as Kate mentioned, there's all great things in focus when you're looking at the trial with McDonald's, which has been successful. Rollout of plant based snacks, which has also been successful. And I think the big things to focus on is how they're, the company's investing their money. Seven percent of their money is going into our. R&D. And I think that's going to be the biggest thing to kind of commercialize um, their plant-based foods to the broader market. So that's kind of where I would be at. I'm still out of the stock, but I think it could be a hold. Kate, I wonder how much of the stock is really going to be kind of fundamentals driven on tonight's numbers and how much is the story, you know, the headlines that they're being added to someone's menu, they're being taken off of it. You know, is that the bigger driver? I think that's anyone's guess, Kelly, and it certainly moves on both of those things, right? The fundamentals, of course, matter, but also these upcoming partnerships. As mentioned, the McDonald's one is a huge deal, but this is a company that's been hit on both ends of the pandemic. Pantry loading boosted business in the beginning of the pandemic. Then that kind of went away, but the restaurant business didn't come back as quickly as I think a lot of people were anticipating, right, because of Delta. So really key on what they say on both of those metrics tonight. All right, Kate, we appreciate it. Kate Rogers. And finally, SoFi Technology is reporting third quarter results today. Only its second report since its SPAC debut in June. The street's expecting another loss here, 14 cents a share on uh, $251 million in sales. They've seen a 30 percent rally in their shares over the past month. 
but they've still only gained about 5% since going public. Now, people say it's anticipation of its potential bank charter approval. Investors will be watching member numbers, average revenue per user. Kate Rooney, there's a lot of different things going on here. A lot of different metrics. Members, like you mentioned, is one big thing. How many people are actually using the platform They've really been ramping up advertising. So the question is, is that going to pay off? Then products per user. So are people signing up for more than just one or two things like a loan? Are they using the debit card? Are they using things like stock trading? Galileo, that's another area to watch. It was a billion-dollar deal back in 2020. People are looking at the growth there. It's a banking infrastructure company. So that's another line item to watch. And then the bank charter is big. They applied for a national bank charter. That could really improve the economics on the lending side. So any color around that? Sort of on the qualitative side, what can we expect? Will SoFi become an FDIC-insured bank? And Delano, on that note, the acting controller of the currency gave this really great speech in the past couple of weeks where he kind of outlines some of his concerns about how much bank-like activity has moved to non-banks effectively. So you have to wonder if they're going to look to reel that in and and crack down a little. But I don't know if that's going to be a near-term issue at all here, though, or or what, what would you do with the stock? Yeah, that, that could be a near-term issue. And as, as mentioned, that the, actually the stock and the company is widening out their services. So you're seeing a 20, 243% growth in the, their, their products, right? So that's a big thing to look at. You have SoFi Invest, SoFi Money. So people are coming out to the platform to do more than what was originally just their lending and refinancing, uh, a bit part of the business, right? So that's a big thing for the stock. I think generally there's still a lot of momentum in the business. You're looking at a company that's lending out. They're actually getting to the cryptocurrency side of things. So they have more in the ecosystem that they can use for their, their users, right? They're over 2.5 million users. I think that lends to a lot of things that we could also look at the national bank charter. That might be an area where, you know, investors can see more momentum on that side of the business as well. Am I right that you're saying they're still trading around 30 times revenue? I mean, that that's a really elevated number. I do think it's an area to watch if they end up being able to offer IPOs directly, uh, you know, access to the IPO price directly to users of their platform. It feels like an obvious area where fintech could maybe offer a service that a lot of the public's been missing out on. 100%. That's kind of the reason why I've kind of been on the stock. I'm looking forward to come back into more of my range for the valuation, as you mentioned, 31 times uh, revenue. And as you mentioned, I think Robinhood played around with a little bit of that IPO directly to retail investors. And I think if there also is more traction around that, as we realize that a lot of these platforms are going after younger uh, retail investors, that might be an area where they can see some growth as far as diversification of their business, Kelly. All right. Delano, thanks. Always good to have you with us. Delano Sapporo. Kate Rooney, we appreciate it. Kate, we covering SoFi today. Tonight. And a quick programming note on Disney. The CEO, Bob Chapek, will join Julia Borson in person to discuss their earnings on Fast Money tonight around 530 Eastern. But first, if you want to attract investors, give your company an emissions target date without verifying it with scientists. We'll explain and what it means for meeting President Biden's climate goals right after this. While climate change is top of mind for world leaders and ESG investors, less than a fifth of S&P 500 companies have emissions targets in place that have actually consulted with experts to determine their feasibility. Pippa Stevens joins me now with these important details. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. A lot of targets and initiatives announced at COP26. But the reality is that the majority of companies remain sharply misaligned with net zero goals. We have seen an uptick in climate targets within the S&P 500. 66% of companies now have some sort of emissions target, according to data from Refinitiv. And that is up from 42% in 2015 and 36% 10 years ago. The utilities and staples sectors are leading the way, with more than 90% of companies in each group establishing a target. 
Financials and healthcare are at the bottom with about 50%. All told, emissions from S&P companies are down 12% over the last decade based on data that's been reported. But that gets to one of the issues. At the moment, climate data is based on what companies choose to disclose. There's no regulation around what has to be reported, which means a lack of uniformity and accountability across companies and industries. Additionally, just 16% of S&P 500 companies that have a target have a pledge that's been verified by the Science-Based Targets Initiative. This makes sure companies aren't relying on offsets to cut emissions and requires both short- and long-term goals, among other things. But SBTI founder Alberto Pineda telling me that a target's just the first step. A company then needs to have a transition plan in place. And currently, there's no way for targets to be enforced, although the SEC is examining it. So in the meantime, Kelly, shareholders are one way to hold companies accountable. And I wonder, though, if I mean, especially in Europe, where you've got The Hague literally telling Shell they have to cut their scope three emissions by 45 percent. Maybe there you could see it, you know, more enforced. But even here, as people wisen up to this, I have to imagine there's going to be higher and higher standards. Exactly. There's a lot of people looking into this right now, but it's really difficult. You know, is it just scope one and scope two? Or what about scope three? And scope three is really hard with global supply chains that are really complex. So it's not only just reporting this, but how we are going to report it and what makes sense for companies across all of these different industries. And, and again, just so people know, the scope three is kind of the indirect emissions that your company might generate, not necessarily from purely your own activities, but from everything involved in creating those activities. And at a time when there's more focus on that than ever, are we going to start seeing a raft of, you know, accounting standard verified under, you know what I'm saying? We need, we're almost like we need an entire new regulatory set who can agree on what those standards should be. Absolutely. And, you know, for scope three, let's say you're a retailer and you have operations in China. It's that factory that's relying on coal and then it's shipping it across the world and then it's transporting it to the end point. So these are incredibly complex and you have to have a lot of parties that are on board with how we're going to report them and companies reporting the same types of data. And that's what's so hard because companies don't want to do that. That's a higher cost. But on the flip side, if it's imposed by regulators, then they have to comply. So right. there is some advantage to self-reporting all this information. And the retail industry is a great example because most people assume this is largely an oil and gas industry issue, but it's not. It will start to pull in people who have previously not had to put a cost to those exposures and now do. But, but thanks so much. We appreciate it. Pippa Stevens. Well, it's been a volatile week for this asset. It's back at record highs, but trading volumes are dropping. The evolution coming up. Welcome back to The Exchange. We know the holiday travel season could be a tough one, and it doesn't look like it's getting any better right now. The American Airlines Pilots Union has rejected the company's offer of as much as double pay for working trips around the holidays. Now, of course, they're trying to avoid more mass cancellations, but the union voted against the premium pay of at least 150 percent double pay for picking up open holiday trips. They say they want more permanent changes to scheduling. Some airlines have struggled to meet rising demand as they trimmed staff amid the pandemic. American canceled more than 2,000 flights in October and November after bad weather and staffing shortages. Southwest and Spirit have faced similar issues that have cost them between 50 and 75 million dollars. Still ahead, shares Coinbase are sliding today on disappointing results. Revenue and user numbers also came in below expectations. When will the Coinbase traders return? And check out shares of Rivian surging in their debut, up nearly 30% from the IPO price of 78. But they are $6 below where they hit the street. Rivian clinging on to that triple-digit mark at 100. We're back in a moment.
Welcome back, everybody. Rivian shares just broke below $100. Remember, they opened at 106.75. You can see there the downward momentum. We'll have more on this in just a moment. Still well above the $78 IPO price. Coinbase was another IPO that debuted at over $100 million billion. Its shares are down 7% today after missing earnings estimates, reporting they shed more than a million monthly transacting users from the previous quarter. It's not all bad news. Coinbase, Bitcoin, Ethereum all up more than 50% since October 1st. Bitcoin and Ethereum are sitting at all-time highs pretty much, oh, they're off those levels from this morning. We almost hit 69 for Bitcoin. A lot of that was the inflation data. As it continues to come in hotter than expected and big names like Jack Dorsey and Paul Tudor Jones tout crypto as a hedge, are investors beginning to treat it like a longer-term asset rather than a daily trade? Joining me now is Owen Lau. He's a senior analyst at Oppenheimer. Owen, welcome. And, you know, is, is good news for crypto as an asset class kind of bad news for trading platforms? Correct. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me, uh, Kelly. So uh, actually, the, the platform, it's not that bad. I mean, if you look at the revenue itself, even though it missed analyst estimate, it's still up 300% year over year. So to me, as far as the volatility of this crypto, it's here. The platform, it still um, can still do quite well. How important are NFTs as that asset class develops as well? Do you think they'll be able to move a significant amount of activity over? Because from what I've heard, it is pretty complex and convoluted to buy an NFT right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, for, from a Coinbase perspective, I think it will be a good add to Coinbase. Um, take, uh, you know, OpenSea as an example. This is the largest player in this industry. They have about 260,000 monthly users. Uh, Coinbase has not launched NFT yet, but uh, based on the signups they have, they have about two and a half million, 2.5 million signups so far. So, which is like 10x the current users of OpenSea. Based on our estimate, if these pace continued, uh, it can add about 7% earnings uh, to Coinbase bottom line in 2023. So it can be material. Do, can you get any sense from the company, Owen, as to whether they've kind of calmed things down with the SEC? So uh, I think one key point, I think this point is also somehow underreported. It's... Um, uh, Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong uh, mentioned that he had a meeting with the SEC chair Gary Gensler last week. So after this like tweak storm, and uh, but Coinbase still published this digital assets um, policy proposal. And to me, I think it's hard to predict the regulatory outcome, but this is a signal that the relationship has been improving. Okay. So at the end of the day, I, I see the path to get there. So with the shares down 7% today, around 331, what do you, I mean, about 55 forward PE, so high but not insane. What do you think the proper valuation should be? So I look at these on a revenue basis, not on the PE basis. Um, I think they still trade at 11 times uh, revenue, uh, which is still uh, trading at a discount compared to other fintech uh, company, which is like trading at 14, 15 times rev. So I do believe uh, Coinbase is still a, a good investment for investors. What is the favorite names that you currently have in your coverage space? So our, our favorite names are uh, S&P Global, uh, NASDAQ, MSCI, and also Coinbase right now. I think it's a good buy. Any comment on the NASDAQ open of this stock? You know, it took till about 1 p.m. and it hasn't it's been a little little soggy in its market debut. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the, the market has been like quite volatile because of the inflation, because of 
um, supply chain constraints, but um, but I, I'm optimistic on the long-term investment on NASDAQ and even S&P. All right. Owen, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Owen Lau. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.